0: Few people have a style and philosophy as incomparable as my next guest. Ethan Newton is the guy in your head you aspire to look like when you're getting dressed. Whether he's wearing an old chambray shirt of his own design, or dressed in a Liverano suit made from vintage fabric, Ethan's style looks like it's there on purpose. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, but you can't deny he looks good. I remember asking Ethan to help me pick out a tie once, and I was having a really hard time with it. He handed me a few different options, and I froze. Which one will let people know I'm smart, I asked myself. Will this one make me look like a clown? I asked Ethan for his opinion, and I remember every word of his reply. He stood before me and said, Who cares? It's just clothes. My name is Jeremy Kirkland, and this is Blamo, a podcast exploring the world of fashion with the people who shape it. My guest this week is Ethan Newton. We discuss the evolution of menswear, why bespoke clothing isn't always necessary, and why he believes you should never buy anything on sale. Let's do it. Ethan Newton, Ethan Desu. Mhm. Dude. Correct. I'm I'm so glad you're on.
1: Thank you. It's been a long time coming. I'm sorry it's taken so long.
0: Yeah. You've been in a lot of ways a big brother to me of clothing and the clothing business. Mm-hmm. And um, a huge like sort of role model and, and in a, in a way also a barometer of what <laughs> of what is okay and what is not in the Tearing industry. Up. So, serious, thank you. Thank you.
1: Um, it's nice of you to say.
0: Yeah, I want I wanted to have you on to talk about your background and most specifically what you're what you've been doing at Bryceland's. I mean, I'm I'm wearing your one of the Rayon Elvis shirts that you guys do, and you look smashing. It. <laughs> Thanks. People ask me about it all the time, and I I think you know I had talked a little bit, uh, Patrick, about uh, you with Patrick Johnson and. I think what you guys are doing over at Bryceland's is really special because, you know, as we'll talk about later, suiting and hashtag menswear is pretty much over. But what you guys are, well, in 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 the U.S. and I, I feel like what you guys are doing over in Japan and your the look that you've created and the vibe, like it's not it's not suiting, it's not it's not any of that stuff to me. It's just this this cool guy, relaxed. Um, Americana slash forties fifties vibe. I mean, I love it. I, obviously, I want to hear it from the horse's mouth, but I think what you guys are doing is really special.
1: Thanks for chat Thank you. I don't think suiting is over. Wait, um, no, no. I think I think suiting has just evolved. Um, oh, I think that, I think that there was a um in in Japanese we use the term otaku, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners will understand as being the the people who are st- overly obsessed with the details or the history or the, the minutia of something. Um, and I think that era of suiting hashtag menswear is over. I yeah. hope, I hope it is. Um, but I think dressing for occasions is something that we'll always have. So what do you mean dressing for occasion? Well, you, you can't say that suiting is over because there's guys that love to wear suits and need to wear suits and want to wear suits. Well, right. Um, That's but true. It's, but it's also that the look of, I'm richer than you, is just not a particularly cool look. It's kind of wanky, right? So, um, Sure. And the idea of you have to dress like you're um, a model in a magazine with, with no natural life to what you're wearing, that right. doesn't work for us. I mean, I'm, I'm a big, fat, bald, bearded, ugly man, so I um I have to wear clothes in a way that speaks to who I am because if it just speaks to what I look like, that's not saying anything good. Um, yeah. yeah. So.
0: Let me push back a little bit on that, because yes, you're wearing clothes that speaks to who you are, but I think one of the reasons why, you know, I mean, we won't even get too deep into the fact that you have this cult following online and had one, you know, on Tumblr and all this stuff, you may dress for yourself, but I think what you don't realize is you also represent... um not just a genre of people, but I think people want it to be okay for them to care as much about clothes as as they do. And I think in a way, you have kind of bridged that gap as being someone who's really cool, hasn't lost touch with himself, um, and but still cares about their pants and their you know. And I think that's in a way, you're you know whatever you want to say about yourself, you have basically made it okay to care about this.
1: Well, I think that that is something, um, how do I put it, we we have to take care of all aspects of, of who we are, um, and that should be okay. I mean, I, I grew up in Sydney, Australia, where, you know, I'm 38, so I first started getting into fashion in my teens, and that was a period where if you wore a pink shirt, it's like, oh, are you gay?
0: Really? You poof, so,
1: pick with your pink shirt.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So not the most welcoming...
1: No. I mean, (laughs) the most backwards uh, mentality around clothing, Um, which is crazy to me, because... And and I see this a lot, people who treat dressing well as something so um, insignificant or so uh, not worthy of attention. Mm. And... It's, it's the first thing that people see about us, and it's, it's a big part of how we present ourselves to the world. So if you don't do that with some quality, then why bother getting dressed at all? Um, for people that feel that way, it's like, okay, well, why don't you just eat McDonald's every day? Why eat good food? Yeah. Why make any effort with anything if you're not going to make an effort with something as fundamental as the way you present yourself to the world? It's fair. So, yeah.
0: Interesting. So you had said you're from Sydney. Where, how, what's life like growing up for you?
1: I grew up uh specifically in an area called Yaguna. Um, I went to a school called Piung Voice High School. It wasn't a particularly nice school. Um, I grew up in a not particularly um traditionally white um area okay. so I was very fortunate to grow up with friends that have come from all parts of the world and speaking every different language in eating all different types of cuisine, and I got exposed to that early. Um, and that's really shaped my life because I was never content to stay in Australia. I'd had little glimpses of how amazing the world it is outside of Australia and wanted to get out. So, yeah, I grew up in Sydney and um, got into fashion reasonably early. Worked in a really interesting store called Robbie Ingham's in, on Paddington Street.
0: Ox- R- Robbie Ingham's?
1: Yeah, o- Oxford Street, Paddington. My apologies. Um, Robbie was one of the uh, uh, one of the main influences for someone my age on a multi brand retailer doing something really interesting. And I worked there quite young with a very cool guy named Ryan Lober. Shout out to Ryan if he listens to this. He's in New York, I think. Maybe. Yeah. That um, we sold Paul Smith and Corneliani and oh, so uh, it third party retailer. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. multi brand retail. How old were you? I want to say 17, maybe. Okay. Something like that. Right. Um, maybe 18, I think 17. Um, yeah, so I worked at Robbie Ingham's and got into tailoring and did a lot of fitting on suits and I had some, uh, I'd been studying fashion design and particularly tailoring and I'd learned a little bit of sewing before that and was very interested in tailoring. Um, but I worked up the street from a store called Swell Store, which sold a brand called Avisu. And I got interested in Japanese denims and was kind of obsessed with that. Um, and then when I was 20, I met a girl from Japan and started dating and she had to move back to Japan. So I decided to follow her there. And I moved to, I lived in Kawasaki, just south of Tokyo. And... um mm worked as an English teacher for I think two months and by chance ran into the owner of a Visu at the Visu store in Hiro and uh got talking and he invited me out for dinner and we got absolutely smashed together and he invited me to work for him and that was the next two years or so. Wait, working. are you serious?
0: Yeah you, like seriously. you just bumped into him and he did you I, know Japanese at the time?
1: Very little, very little. Um, yeah I'd walked into the store um hoping to buy something and spoke to the store manager and said, you know, I'm a tailoring guy from Sydney. I really love this brand. And he said, Oh, Mr. Yamane is downstairs at the bar making fly fishing lures. Why don't (laughs) you go and chat to him? And of course, and I think he was probably half cut at that time anyway. Um, Okay. And I was 20 and absolutely green. had no idea what the world was about. Sure. And got chatting to him and yeah, he said, let's go and have dinner. And we got full down drunk. And the next day, I think he said that night, okay, you're going to work for me from now on. And then the next day someone called me and said, all right, you can quit your job. And I did and started working for them and met some of the most um, amazing, interesting people. Uh, at, At the time, the real McCoys, the original real McCoys had just gone out of business or closed down or changed hands or whatever had happened. Sure. And a lot of those... Real McCoy's guys had left to do their own things, and a few of them came to a uh, One guy in particular named Murai-san, and uh, I worked with Murai-san, and he started teaching me the Japanese approach to classic American workwear and military and all that sort of stuff, and that was really interesting because I had a, a keen interest in that anyway, um, but he sort of gave me the vocabulary around it.
0: What, If you don't mind, what was the approach that he was teaching you, um, or, or an example of it?
1: One of the things that's really stuck with me is um, he used to say, when we wear our denims, we dress batukusai. Uh And batukusai, kusai in Japanese means to smell of, to stink of. Um, so batakusai means stinks of butter, which in his explanation was if something something's very American, it's, it smells like butter. That's how American it is. It's like butter. Not soy sauce, it's butter. Oh. So... He would always say we dress batakusai, um, which was wearing 501s cut too short and then rolled up a little bit. Um, wearing high top uh, Converse All Stars or Chuck Taylor's, whatever.
0: Yeah. Um, so, and, like a 40s through 60s type yeah, American. Exactly. Yeah.
1: It was really cherry picking the best bits and pieces of
0: mm-hmm.
1: every era. Um, and I think I've done that my entire career. I haven't really been particularly authentic in any one era and i I don't really want to be i don't want to cosplay um Mm. uh, because i think one of the things that really affects us badly or, or shines a bad light on us that enjoy dressing well is that um there's a tendency to kind of wear a costume and not feel overly natural in what we're wearing um whereas if you just pick the things you like and wear them well and and have an understanding of the history but not be uh, too regimented about following that, then you can dress well and interesting and not look like you're trying to be a, a revivalist.
0: Well, I want, I want to sidebar about that because you are one of the few people that I've known that I when I first met you, you had a, a particular style. Then I interacted with you later, you have a particular style. I interacted with you later, you have a particular style. That style was the same, in, in my opinion. You've always had, uh, like, you were the guy, to me, who was actually doing, you know, I mean, even right now, you're wearing, like, a chambray shirt and uh, I assume Ambrosi trousers or, or something along those lines, and it's like you really mixed the classic American with the Italian, but it wasn't the way it was in that sort of movement when it was fake. And I think, that, you know... And the reason why I, I say it was fake is people were like, oh, I'm doing this because someone told me how to do this. I like your your style, I think, is one of the most authentic expressions of you and your personality. And in, and I mean this in the best possible way because I fail at this all the time. I mean, you've, you've known me for years. I've worn all sorts of weird things. And all of that has been in a way to kind of figure out like who I am and, and what I'm doing. And in a lot of ways, I think I was you know, when I would look in the mirror, I wanted to look, you know, like Ethan, like Jeff Hilliard and I, a really good friend of mine will reference how you wear your stuff all the time. And I, I think, I
1: don't know who that's got Jeff Hilliard,
0: (laughs) but I think, you know, like you have always really nailed it with that. And the fact that you just said that you don't really sort of subscribe to a particular era makes a lot more sense to me now, because when I think of clothing, I'm like, oh, I'm going to be 1940s type Jeremy today. I'm going to be 1980s type Jeremy. And you are just Ethan. And I, that's, I, I hope that, as, you know, as we continue talking that other people can find some sort of way to figure out how to be more themselves and what they were.
1: Well, I would say on that, on, on the comment of failing, who cares? It's clothes. <laughs> who gives a shit? Seriously. Yeah, no, you're um, right. You're right. <laughs> it's, if you're making an effort and you're having fun and you're not failing, you're, Doing what you do, and and anything that you do, and you might say, "Oh, that, that didn't really work." Someone else is going, you know, "Holy shit, that looked awesome." Um, which, That's true. Which happens. I mean, yeah. It's happened to me. I feel like I'm dressed terribly, and I feel like I've completely failed, and I'm contemplating going home to get change at lunchtime. Meanwhile, like,
0: there's about five hundred photographers trying to follow you around. A pity.
1: No, no, maybe not that, but um, but someone will come and say, "Oh, I really like what you're wearing today," and and they'll get it, and they'll get a reference from it that I didn't get, and. And it'll appeal to them. We all have a different aesthetic taste and yeah, yeah. You know, as long as we have fun and we play with it and do the best we can and dress for the right occasion. I think dressing for occasion is super important. I think a lot of people fail with that. There's a bit of a stereotype, particularly in Tokyo where I live um, that the, and, and I have a lot of friends who are bespoke makers, um, shoemakers and tailors and bag mm-hmm. makers and, we're a very small community I guess and we all tend to catch up and hang out and it is a bit of a uh, a stereotype that the real dedicated bespoke customers that are the guys that go to the beach on a weekend in plus fours and brogues and just overly all the time dressed in bespoke and it's like sometimes you just got to say no I'm going to the beach I'm going to throw on some shorts and a t-shirt or yeah you know I'm I'm Going to the gym, I'm going to throw on some sweats. You can't um, be so dedicated to the bespoke life that you never, you know, have a hair out of place. It <laughs> just becomes very boring, very studied, very costume.
0: Right. Well, I want, I want to jump back to your story. So you were at uh, EVSU for what? You said three years. Two years, I think. Two years. Oh, a long where, time ago. A long time ago. Where did you jump from there? Um,
1: I very foolhardishly proposed to that girl mistake okay. and uh, moved back to Australia. And I had worked previously for Louis Vuitton and I did again for a brief time working in retail.
0: Oh yeah. You worked at Hermes too.
1: No, I worked next to Hermes and was very good friends with the people there and okay. always wanted to. And they kind of said, why don't you come and work for us? Uh, but I wanted to follow more the classic tailoring worlds and, and mm. get into design and production and tailoring. Um, so I guess the most significant Next move was um, I got a job working for a brand called Herringbone, which was a pretty important brand in Australia at the time. This is probably 2004. Mm-hmm. So I was in my early 20s. I was newly married, um, living in North Sydney, close mm-hmm. close to the city, um, feeling like I was very grown up.
0: Um, I know that feeling.
1: Yeah. I still feel that way sometimes. <laughs> um, the rest of the time I just feel old. Um uh, but I went in for an interview with a lovely lady named Danielle Brenack, and much to her chagrin, halfway through the interview, Johnny Martin, the owner, came and sat down, and um, we just had a good old chat, and he said, okay, you're hired. Um,
0: in the interview, he's just said you're hired?
1: Yeah, pre- pretty much. Wow. Um, it was that. Uh, one, it's Australia, but uh, <laughs> also, we're like that. Sure. But um, it was that sort of a company, and I spent maybe six or seven years working for Herringbone. Um in every different role available,
0: what type of clothing was herringbone?
1: herringbone was australia's answer to thomas pink um it was oh okay. very heavy on shirting and ties and cufflinks um started doing a lot more tailoring after I joined and we played with some fun things. We did ring jacket um as really? far back as two thousand and eight two thousand seven um, okay, we did ring jacket, which. It was too expensive for the Australian market at that time, but it was a fun thing to try. We did Crockett and Jones, and mm-hmm. um, started bringing in more fun and interesting things. And two really really cool guys that owned the business, uh, Johnny Mutton and uh, Matt Jansen. Um, and eventually that uh, got bought out by a German company. And uh, after a trip to Germany, I decided I didn't want to work for that company anymore. And I uh, had met a very cool guy named Patrick Johnson and his business partner, Tommy Riley. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it was just the two of them at the time running the business. One, Tommy was down in Melbourne and Patrick was in Sydney. Uh, and they asked me to come on board and I spent a couple of months working with them. Had some fun and both super sweet guys. Too handsome for me to work with them. I just didn't fit. It was I felt like the fat beetle. Um, Wait, who's the fat beetle? Well, you know, it's like, all these handsome guys in the Beatles in one fact, That helped me. Um, and um then through a customer, I got introduced to the guys at the Armory and went over and did six weeks consulting with them and sort of setting up the store. And eventually they asked me to come back full-time and that was the start of the Armory era, which was really cool, really fun. I yeah, that hardcore. was when I first met you. Yeah, I think... uh
0: I met you at Pity with Mark 2000. 2011. Yeah, 2011. Yeah, so. um... I was very much a clown at the time. I was wearing Tom Brown sweatpants and a Supreme, uh, (laughs) and a Supreme, uh, uh, like, fishtail parka. And I saw you and you were like, uh, hi. But I want to state for the record, you were absurdly polite and generous and nice to me. And I was like, hi, you're Ethan. You're and I remember I was like I was like Mr. Desu and you're like uh that's not my name. Yeah, it's not my name.
1: <laughs> to clarify that Desu means it is in Japanese. Um, it means what? It is. Oh, or this is. So, um, there's a s- story behind this, and I'll I'll give you the story just sure. to clarify, so people don't keep keep calling me Mr. Desu and thinking that I have some very unusual name. Uh, when I worked at Avisu, Avisu is a Kansai brand, Osaka. Okay. And the Kansai dialect and the Kansai way of being is a little bit more uh, relaxed, a little bit more brash, not quite as um, uh, not quite as polite as the uh, Tokyo Kanto okay. way of being. Um, so we used to answer the phone at Visu basically by saying it's a Visu, almost like you've called a Visu. What do you want? And the way we did that was "Evisdes," saying this is a Visu. Oh. And I got back to Australia, and I I, I had started answering my, my mobile phone that way, it's just saying Ethan Des, and I kept on answering my phone that way when I got back to Australia, and people started calling me Ethan Des. Um and it stuck, so I just ended up being Ethan Des. Whoa. Um. So it just means my name is Ethan, basically. So yeah, it's not actually my last name. My last name is Newton. Um. Or Newton, as you say in America.
0: Newton. Newton. <laughs> Newton. So I met you at the armory, and you know you you really sort of, um, I would say one of the things that you were doing there, you know, you and Mark and, and Alan, you, there was this part, this gold, this new golden era of tailoring for me. And the way that you guys mixed fabrics, how you dressed. I mean, I would say you, Mark and Alan all dressed in a different way, but it, it had this sort of armory look to it. And, I want to say one of the strongest memories I have of you actually was when I joined the Armory and you had come over uh, to New York to help open the store and you were wearing a very nice bespoke clothing and we were trying to get the store ready and you grabbed a mop bucket and filled the bucket up with water and got on your hands and knees and started scrubbing the floor. And I was like, whoa. And I the, the reason why I, I point that out is I think it it was to me, it was a testament to where uh, to how you were as a leader. And there's a lot of places that I had worked at where you're starting somewhere and, you know, one of the bosses or owners or whatever comes over and they say, do X, Y and Z and they leave and you showed up, started unpacking boxes because we had to open in like two days or something and you started scrubbing the floor on your hands and knees. And and I like serious, that is the strongest memory I have of you. And it, it really shaped how I, you know, grew to respect you more and more
1: thank you um that actually also comes back to a visu and that was <laughs> okay. part of the Avisu mentality that every morning everybody in the store from the store manager down to me because i was basically the least important person there um we all got a bucket and a, a very small cloth and I had to scrub the floor um and there was a practical reason for it in that we wanted the store to be clean um, mm-hmm. but more than that it was to for everybody to have the idea that we're not here for us. We're here for the store. We're in service to the store and and in that we're in service to the customer. Mm. And I think that that's what we have to keep in mind constantly is that our business is service to a customer. Our business is as the crew of the store and the store is in service to the customer. So our ego and our, um, our sense of self can't take precedence over what's important for our clients. Um, and we try and maintain that as much as possible. I'm a very, Grumpy, cantankerous old man, so it doesn't always work. But most of the time, that's we what we aim me. for. Yeah. Um. But yeah. But it's also practically if the store needs to be cleaned and you're opening in a couple
0: of days, I'd rather get down and clean it than
1: be like, no, this is below me. I shall not do that.
0: Um, and that, well, that I would say that's a very American way in which, like, can we just get someone in here to to get this done? And I mean, I I remember you were doing it in Saint Crispin's and Ambrosie trousers, and in my head, I was like does he need to change clothes and you were like no i don't care like like you don't baby your stuff you live and you work in it and that i mean again i was just like oh like maybe this is how i should enjoy clothes versus for myself also at the time i was buying clothes and i would put it in my closet and i'm like all right there it is i got it let's just sit in the closet and you're like no i'm gonna scrub the floor in this and
1: honestly i know that uh, friends who are makers bespoke makers the thing they hate the most is the client who buys something and never wears it. The, yeah. The, Museum the, pieces. Exactly. And and there's a lot of that in Japan. The guys that have bespoke shoes made and then put it, polish it and put it on a shelf and then never wear them. Oof. And for a shoemaker that's awful because it's it's unfulfilled. It's never reached its purpose or its goal. Yeah. Shoes need to be worn. Clothes need to be worn. I mean, the best thing about clothes is that they can take a beating and they, they have the scars or the memories of things that have happened. I have a beautiful blue suit in tonic 2000, bright blue tonic 2000 mohair.
0: Oh, yeah, I know that. Family.
1: Made by Liverano. I wore it yesterday. Worn by, uh, made by Liverano. And it was the first Liverano piece I got, um, which was the most significant purchase I'd ever had at the time. Um, and uh, I was sitting on a chair in a little cafe, a wicker chair in a cafe down by the Arno one morning and got up and it tore a hole in the back of the jacket. Uh, And for about 30 seconds I freaked out. I'm like, oh my god, I've ripped the jacket. What have I done? (laughs) And I was like, I ripped the jacket sitting in a cafe on the Arno in Florence at 8 in the morning before going to Pity, and I'm a bogan from Western Sydney. That's awesome. That's (laughs) super cool yeah you know, that's that's a memory to have um and I got it patched up obviously but yeah um it doesn't bother me i I like the fact that it's got a bit of age on it and and if 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 I buy anything that doesn't get better after a wear if if there's anything I purchase that is at its best the moment uh, it's in the store, then it's failed um and if I sell anything that's that way it's failed uh, I think that One of the great equalizers in clothing is that um, anybody with a lot of money, and we know who those people are, anyone with lots of cash can go into a store and buy the best of the best of everything. But in menswear, that doesn't mean you're going to be better dressed than anybody else. The guy who wears his shoes and polishes them and puts some time into them and resolds them when he needs to and they have the right patina, the guy who can beat up a jacket by, you know, have a tweed jacket and sleep on a plane in it and get it nice and round and rumpled and pulls and snags in the right places. And uh, Denim's the perfect example. Nobody can buy jeans that look as good as a pair you've worn for the last three years. Yeah. And there is no way, and I mean, everybody has tried, there is no way to get jeans that look that good the moment you buy them. You have to work. You have to put the effort in to get them there. And that's a really liberating thing because. Literally, the, the barista at the local cafe that you know has barely two cents to rub together, he can buy a pair of jeans and wear them every day for the next year and a half, and they'll look a lot better than the CEO who only gets to wear them on the weekends. And he's got that. You know, and that's, uh, that's a, a great equalizer, I think.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. Oh.
1: And what we do now, Kenji and I, my business partner Kenji, We have a very specific goal that everything we make, um, we don't make anything washed. We don't make anything that's unnaturally aged. Everything is rigid or raw. Mm -hmm. Um, And everything should be uh, able to age. It should benefit from aging. So we sell a lot of fox flannel. We sell a lot of Harris tweed. Uh, I love cordovan. I love raw denim. Um, Things that do get better with age. So... You know that's a that's a big part of our ethos is that we want our customers to be buying things that the moment it's at its absolute best is the day that your wife says you've got to stop wearing that pair of jeans they're about to fall apart they're literally right. wearing th- wearing thin and I can see through them um, and that's the be- that's the best the yeah. stuff that you don't want to give it up but you know you have to because you've worn it so hard yeah um, that's what I want our product to be.
0: I carry a lot of things with me in my day-to-day life. Headphones, a notebook, my laptop, the usual stuff. All of it's stuffed inside my tumble-weathered tote from Frank Clegg Leatherworks, A family-owned business, Frank Clegg has been handcrafting leather briefcases, travel luggage, totes, and accessories for over 45 years. Frank Clegg Weatherworks uses custom vegetable tan leathers, solid brass hardware, and time-tested techniques to provide an exceptional product of heirloom quality and timeless design. Look, they'll even work with you on the design. I don't know anyone who can do it like the Clegg family. Best of all, it's made right here in the USA. I've owned my Weather tote for years and it's broken in beautifully. It's a perfect mix of ruggedness and elegance that I can carry when I'm wearing a suit or when I'm just wearing jeans and a t-shirt. Right now, Frank Clegg is offering Blamo listeners 10% off their first purchase. Go to frankcleggweatherworks.com and use promo code Blamo at checkout. These guys don't go on sale here. They're not doing this for anyone else. So take advantage and upgrade your bag or weather accessory today. That's frankcleggweatherworks.com. Frank, C L E G G Weatherworks.com and use promo code Blamo at checkout for 10% off your first order. Well, so your your product, and specifically you're referring to Bryce Lins, um you had opened it. What? How long ago? We opened the
1: Tokyo store a bit over two years ago, and the Hong Kong store about six months ago.
0: Okay, so you got one more notch in your belt before you had gone and opened it. And because I, I remember when you were at the Armory and you had announced that you were leaving, you went over and you became what? What was your role at Ralph Lauren?
1: Mm. Um. I was senior director of Lu- men's luxury brands for Asia Pacific for Ralph um very ill advised posting um that uh, that same lady that I was married to convinced me I should take she said if Ralph personally is offering you the job you have to take the job um I should have said no but um, in any case, I worked for Ralph for a year. Um, it was a great experience because I did get to spend a lot of time with Ralph. Um, I spent a lot of time in New York. and
0: Ralph the person. Ralph Ralph to be clear. Yeah.
1: Um uh I actually met his older brother, Jerry, first. Mm-hmm. Um, Jerry had come into the armory and we got talking and he said, Ralph, Ralph will love you. Um, and they asked me to go over to New York and meet them. I just kept on saying no. And eventually I felt like it was time for a change, so I went over and met Ralph and took the role, and ostensibly it was to advise him on the way the market was moving in Asia-Pacific for luxury menswear, particularly tailored and uh, denims and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm a very poor fit for the corporate world. I, I don't play well with others in that sense. I don't like politics. Um, I like to just get things done in the way they need to be done sure and when there's nothing to do i want to sit around and drink coffees and smoke cigarettes and play my guitar i don't want to have to (laughs) pretend to be busy all the time so corporate doesn't work for me
0: right i mean i think the the reason why i wanted to mention the ralph thing is as i feel like you you went through all these different stages in your career uh where you were able to kind of obviously help shape and prepare you for launching bricelands and and you know whether it's the humbleness and the respect for the craft at at uh, Yvesu and and you know really honing that in with working with more custom and bespoke makers at the Armory and then I think you know I you've always been very good at the story um, and when I, I'm air quoting the story here because I remember you I was trying to like pick out a tie and I was like Ethan I was like I was like there, there's all these different ties and I was like I need to get a good like simple tie. And you were just like, this is not that difficult. <laughs> and you grabbed one and you're like, here, this is it. And I was like, well, why is this good? And, and you like broke it down very quickly. And I think, you know, I, that makes perfect sense of why you went to Ralph because Ralph is about di- distilling the story down and kind of simplifying it. And I think that was one of the great things you were able to do over there. But obviously, you, you le- uh, leave to open uh, Brycelands, which I love. And it is just this perfect. I think to go back one quick second, you had said that like you don't really subscribe to a certain era and now, yeah, looking at Bryson's that makes perfect sense because you have this sort of really sort of smashed amalgamation of some of the best parts of the forties, a little bit of fifties. I mean, it's, it's excellent. But how did that start?
1: Let me go back to the Ralph thing first. Um, (laughs) please, Please. I, I haven't, Done this, and I haven't done the man justice. He is a legend. Um, and when I met him, I had very carefully thought about what would I say um, when he asked why would I be interested in working for him. Although he never asked that, actually, he just asked would I work for him. Um, but what I said was, when I was in my teens, I loved blue jeans and a white T-shirt and a pair of cons. And I still do, you know, high-top sneakers and selvage denims and a white T-shirt rolled mm-hmm. up too short. And um, and I always thought, yeah, that's double RL 1993. That's awesome. It's not. That's, you know, that's 50s greaser kids dressed in sportswear. Um, likewise, I've always thought a pair of flannels and brown suede shoes and an Oxford cloth button down with a rep-striped tie and a tweed jacket the ultimate you know that's purple label 1996 right no that's Fred Astaire that's (laughs) that's a lot of the things what Ralph Lauren did was he gave us all the vocabulary people my age gave us the vocabulary to be able to speak the language of fashion or the language of classic men's clothing that we wouldn't otherwise have had Um, and I did grow up watching a lot of old movies my dad loved westerns and we watched a lot of old movies on a Sunday afternoon um so I did have a feel for what I thought was the best dressed eras uh, in in, our, in recent history, and that tends to be the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s for me. Um, uh, but Ralph kind of made that something that was palatable and easy to understand and relevant to our generation, mm. um, which is something I'd like to do as well. I'd like to be able to say, sure, wear a rayon shirt. It's not something that only rockabilly kids can wear. It's not something that you, you don't have to be a, a, you know, a Los Angeles rockabilly to be able to wear a round shirt. Throw it on with a pair of high-waisted trousers and a pair of loafers and yeah, feel like you can own it. It doesn't have to be a costume of anything. You can take those elements, you can pay homage to the way they were worn, but you don't have to prescribe exactly to it. You don't have to wear a costume. You just make it your own. Uh, sorry, I forgot what your question was now. Oh, well, I was I talking rambled. about...
0: No, that made a lot of sense, but I was talking about what what led to starting Bryce Um,
1: Well, I needed a job. Um, <laughs> okay. And it was something, even when I was working for Herringbone in, in my 20s, Johnny, my old boss, used to always say, you should have your own business. And I always feel like such a fraud. Um, I'm like, eventually people are going to realize I don't know shit, and it's all going to come crashing down.
0: Yeah, you um, have a bad case of imposter syndrome, by the way. Um, do you know what that is? But No,
1: what was imposter, imposter
0: syndrome? Imposter syndrome means that you, it's, it's usually characterized as like fearing your success and never feeling that you're successful because you immediately think, well, no, like, you know, actors get it a lot. Like people will be like, oh, one day they're going to find out I'm not really that talented or I'm not that smart. Um, that's when it's like, it's okay to be talented. You're, you're really good at what you do. It's it's, that's fine. I'm dubious, um,
1: but I I'd, I'd never had the feeling that I could actually do this because I saw the people who did this and I'm like, wow, I could never be like that. Um, uh, but I eventually got to a point where I realized I can't go and work for somebody else. I suck at the corporate corporate job. I'm terrible at um, the politics and mm. terrible at. Being ineffective while looking effective, which is what I think most corporate jobs are, at least in my experience. its I'd say there's a lot of truth to that, yeah. It's how do I look like I'm doing my job rather than how do I do my job really well, um, in my experience. Apologies to all the no, no, corporate no. listeners out
0: there. I imagine they're in agreement.
1: Um, so I had a lot of friends in Hong Kong that kind of said, yeah, with what you've done at the Armour, you should do that again but do it more exactly to the way that you want it to be done Um, and uh, I had met a guy through a very good friend of mine as a customer um, at Ralph Lauren Mm -hmm. named Kenji, Kenji Chung. Um, He was a really sweet dude and he kind of got all the same things I got and he was good friends with my buddy Joe, Joe Al, who is without doubt the most talented designer I've ever met. Um, Do you know Joe? And I Joe. do, yeah. Joe in New York, what a sweetheart he is. Love that boy. Um, so Kenji and I got talking, and I said I have a pretty grand idea about it—something it's I want to do as a business. If you want to be involved, and let's let's crack on. Um, and Ralph had um offered to relocate me back to Japan, which I took, and I moved back to Japan. Um, which was a a wise move with a Japanese wife. Um, uh, and, uh, we sort of, we kept on, I kept on seeing private clients and working as I could with a few of the suppliers I worked with, but the goal with what we did at Pricelands is, and what we're trying to do at Pricelands is kind of counterintuitive, I guess, because I don't like consumerism. I'm a retailer that despises consumerism. Um. <laughs> So I kind of want to be able to sell things that are anti-consumerist. And we do spend quite a bit of time telling our customers, just slow it down. You don't need so much stuff. Enjoy the things you've got and you know, figure out how you want to wear them and wait until that need for something arises before you buy more, which isn't great for cash flow, admittedly. <laughs> um, but it feels a lot more ethical and it feels a lot more like what the sort of business I'd like to shop at if mm. I was a consumer.
0: Yeah, so you're you're saying, like, don't just consume to get more stuff. Like, build your wardrobe, build it carefully, and if you really only need, you know, one pair of jeans, you don't need to buy eight. You don't need to buy the shirt in every color. Exactly. Yeah.
1: I think one of the biggest mistakes men make is shopping on sale. It's it's my pet peeve. um, Because you have no commitment to it. You haven't invested in it from the get-go, you know it is uh, of compromised value. Because it's also generally impulsive shopping. Is that what you're saying, too? Yes, but also just psychologically, it's something that you've bought on a discount. It doesn't have pure value. It doesn't have the value it's supposed to have. Whereas when you... I remember getting my first A2 from the Real McCoys when I was 21 or 22. An A2 jacket. A2 jacket. Yeah. Real McCoys horsehide A2 it was um, russet brown, about three sizes too small because I bought it secondhand of somebody. Okay. But I'd have to save up a lot of money for it. And I valued that thing so much because I had, I had sacrificed for it. I had eaten, you know, I didn't get to eat bento box. I had to eat cheap ramen for a while to be able to save up to buy that jacket. Mm. And consequently, it had great value to me. And I think when we shop on sale... We're buying stuff that we automatically, from the get-go, say this doesn't have great value. That's why it's being sold at a discount. Um, and I think that, at least for me, that's not, kind of not what a man does. You know what I mean? Right. It's like a man buys what he wants in the size he wants it, in the color he wants it, when he needs it, and he pays what it costs and he values it for that and he just buys less of them. But he gets exactly what he wants. That's kind of the person I'd like to be. Right. So um, for our customers, I kind of feel the same way. I don't want them to... We don't go on sale. We don't have sales. I don't think that we should. I think that if I'm selling anything that needs to go on sale, I've failed in my business. Um, Because we're not a traditionally seasonal brand. We don't have a drop in the spring and a drop in the summer and a drop in the autumn. We make stuff as Kenji and I want it, or as the guys in the store say, oh, I'd really like that. One of those,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, we create the things we want and when our production can get it sorted, when we can get all the details worked out, it comes into the store. So most of the things we have either sell out before we want them to, or it's the sort of thing we can just keep season in season out because I don't want to be a store that goes on sale. Right. Um, Yeah, so that's kind of our approach is to be a brand that um, a guy can buy something there and also buy it next year and buy it in five years' time and get the same quality and the same product and something that is as relevant now as it will be in 10 years and as it would have been 40 years ago or 70 years ago. Um, We, as as a species, haven't changed that physically from the time when people dressed really well. Like We might be a bit bigger, a bit heavier, our feet are a bit bigger, but essentially we're the same creatures that Fred Astaire and Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart were. That's um, true. And if you ask anybody, when was the best-dressed time, someone might say the 70s. That'd be okay, if you want to say that. Um, but generally most people are going to say, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, and at least for my generation. If you ask anybody, when did men dress the best, they're going to say the 40s and the 50s. That's sort of an era. Yeah. So taking the best elements of that and making it relevant to now is kind of what is most logical to me.
0: Right. Yeah, I mean, I wonder why people do think that's the best-dressed era. Because it was. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I agree with you, but I, I don't even know what I can put Put my finger on to to say why it's it's because it, elegance. It,
1: it was pre-fashion, I think, uh, and and there were elements of fashion at the time. But sure. you think about the way men dressed. Most men had their clothes made by tailors, mm-hmm. and tailors weren't trying to make something that needed to be now. Mm. They were making stuff that needed to fit you and needed to complement you. So things were cut to fit the body. I think that something that. The fashion world falls into, which is really bad, is this tendency to swing too far left and too far right, um, just to be contradictory to the previous season or to the previous uh, collection or to a different designer. If mm. if uh, the paradigm is wide trousers, then suddenly you go to narrow trousers, and if the paradigm is uh, short jackets suddenly you go to long jackets. Um, whereas it's somewhere right in the middle of this pendulum is exactly where it should be. Mm. Your jackets shouldn't be long and they shouldn't be short. They should be the right length. Your trousers shouldn't be wide or narrow. They should fit. So I think clothing at that time, with exceptions, I mean, who wants to wear Oxford bags now? That was a fashion trend. That was a... An Oxford bag? You know what an Oxford bag is? No. Jeremy. I'm sorry. Oxford bags were a trend probably in the 1920s where... Guys would wear flannel trousers that were exceptionally wide, like a forty-six-inch cuff sort of a thing.
0: Oh, yeah, I know what you're talking
1: about. Yeah, so, in that, that was um, that was a trend. Yeah, but I think most clothing at the time wasn't particularly trendy. It was utility, or it was tailored clothing.
0: Yeah, I think there's, you know, I know we were talking about trends, but I think there's definitely going to be a little bit more of a resurgence and of people kind of gravitating back to what you guys at Bryceland's are doing because, you know, a perfect example is with the way that, like, capital F fashion is right now. You have all these, like, it's weird, it's goofy, it's funny, it's humorous, and, you know, people are buying $1,000 tennis shoes that now, like, here's the thing, like, then when it came out, right, the, the general public was like, this is weird. Oh, it's cool? Okay, yeah, it's cool. And now... I would say the general public is like, well, wait, this can't be cool because it's so weird. And what happens, though, is you have these consumers, I know of them because I've spoken to them, and they're like, I just spent $2,500 or $3,000 on some bizarro, weird-looking, you know, tracksuit-type thing with an enlarged shoe, and now it's not cool anymore. What You know, I just lost all that money. And I feel like because of that, people are like, you know, I think I'm just gonna get go back to a t shirt and jeans. I'm gonna go back to like good denim, a good shirt, maybe a sport coat, um, because it's it's like you you it's like Vegas slots trying to dress.
1: I think that this week, guys, you just got to grow a pair. <laughs> Do you like it? Does it look good? Does it make you look good? Then buy it. Yeah. And if that's a bizarre pair of sneakers, then so be it. But have some conviction. Stand behind what you bought. Yeah. And Think to yourself, am I the sort of person that wants to look different every season for the rest of my life, or am I someone that is going to have a character that is steadfast and, mm. and uh, predictable is the wrong word, but you know, a, a steadfast personality that your friends authentic. would say. An, authentic, an authenticity where your, yeah. your friends and your loved ones and your family will say, yeah, I know who Jeremy is. Jeremy's a practical guy that wears chinos and a blue blazer. He's yeah. not a guy that wears bizarro sneakers. If you're the guy that wears bizarre sneakers, cool, do that, be that. That's, Stay that. <laughs> yeah, but, but have the conviction to follow through with that. I mean, I'm a heavily tattooed guy that wears a lot of vintage clothing and Native American jewelry and cowboy boots and engineer boots and lots of wacky shit, but you know, my family know I'm a freak, that's cool. My friends know I'm a weirdo, I stand behind that. Yeah, that's fair. Just, just have some conviction.
0: Um, so Bryson's opened up another store about six months ago. Yes, in Hong Kong. And there's word that you guys may do another one. Really? Yeah.
1: Um, Who knows? Who knows? It would be fun. Um, I think I'm ready for a chapter outside of Asia, but who knows? Yeah. Um, It would be fun to explore other markets. Um, It would be fun to go and live somewhere else. But uh, I think at the moment, at least up until uh, the Olympics in Tokyo, Japan is going to be a priority and... And we're tiny, we're
0: yeah. How we're many how many people work at your shop?
1: All of us in total are six people. Okay, it's me and Kenji. Um, Kenji's based in Hong Kong, and I'm based in Tokyo.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, we have two very cool guys in our Tokyo store,
0: mm-hmm. Yamada and
1: Itashi, and two great people in our Hong Kong store, uh, Gilbert and Janet. So we're we're a small family. We're not a big business, um, and we have a long way to go before we can say we're successful so um we're just going to keep plugging away until we feel like it's right and for me it's about um is the market asking for us to be somewhere and if i don't want to impose myself and my business on a market that isn't isn't ready for it doesn't want it and also don't think that a business is I don't think that Brycelands is strong because of the things that we have in the store. I think that Brycelands has a strength because of the people that are involved with it and the people that believe in it. Um, and as those people present themselves, then the business can grow with them, Mm. you know, business is only as strong as its people. It's not about the bricks or the, the product or the hangers or the, the well mopped floor. It's about the people that bring life and bring soul to that business.
0: Right. No, that that's very true, and I would say that a lot of businesses sometimes they're so focused on growth or whatever that may be that it's it feels that it's easier to maybe neglect or forget about the people that are there trying to make that vision for you.
1: I think with the growth thing, it can be a bit um, egocentric. You know the sort of life we live, and and it's the best life in in the world. We don't have tons of money, but You know, I'm in Florence eating bistecca every day and hanging out with other fashion people. Um, You know, I get to look at clothes for a living and talk to people about cool stuff and design the things that I want in my wardrobe. There's nothing better. I don't need a yacht. I don't need 70 stores. I don't need to have, you know, a big house. I just need to be able to pay my rent, go to the izakaya occasionally, and um, keep doing what I do. So growth is secondary. Growth is as it needs to happen. Yeah. Um, so long as we're still having fun and doing something authentic. And so long as I can be, you know, it's my family name on the, on the door. It's my, my mother's maiden name. So. Oh, really? Yeah. That's my mother's maiden name. So, Braceland? Bryceland, yeah. Fire. Um, so if I don't do that justice, I'm going to feel like my grandpa's going to come back from the grave and punch me. So we've got to keep doing something cool. And growth can wait. Growth can come as it's needed. Um, I'd rather I'd rather be successful with my customers than successful with the investors. If you know what I mean.
0: Yeah. No, that's that's really that's true. That's beautiful. Um, you. The last thing I want to talk about is you guys do e-commerce because apparently <laughs> there's stuff that you guys are making, and the, the only problem for say someone like me is, you know, I can't get to Tokyo and I can't get to Hong Kong, but I still want to find some way to interact and associate myself with with Bryceland's, And so, I mean, I know you, you sell, like, you know, the shirt I'm wearing, you sell some of these online. Do you want to continue growing the online store?
1: I think we don't really have a choice. Yeah. It's the way the world is. Um, that being said, I remember the first time I went to Paris. It was um, maybe 2003, and I was working for Louis Vuitton, and they'd sent me over to Paris as culture training, as they called it. And the most exciting th- thing for me about going to Paris was Arnie's. Arnie's was in Paris. Oh, the ties. Uh Arnie's, the shop. Oh, the, yeah, yeah, right. The Brothers. Yeah. Um, which, you know, reading Japanese magazines, I knew what Arnie's was, but you couldn't buy it anyway. That was a Parisian experience. That was that was uh, tantamount to, to drinking the water in Naples. You know, the the coffee in Naples is as good it is as it is because the water in Naples is a particular water, as the Neapolitans say. Yeah. I clearly haven't had any good Sydney or Melbourne coffee. Um, <laughs> but I do like the regionality of retail and, and the experience of it. And it was kind of intentional in the beginning to not be that accessible because it's nice to be able to say, yeah, you can only get that in Tokyo. Specifically, you can only get that in Jingomai Sanchome in the back of Harajuku. Um, but... Realistically, I know that's not the way the world is and people want to be able to buy what we do and I'm really bad at answering emails. Um, so, yeah, I think online will grow. That's Kenji's domain, so hopefully he'll uh, put a little more attention into that and make it work. We produce a lot of things ourselves now. Um, we have some really, really good uh, collaborators in Japan, uh, manuf- manufacturers and mills and things like that. Um And there's a bunch of things that, from a design perspective, I have this idea that there is such a thing as perfect design, design where uh, form is led by function, where it's the perfect balance of utility and aesthetics, Um, like a Zippo lighter or a classic Coke bottle or um, uh, a Buco leather jacket. Mm -hmm. These are things that are designed for functionality but are so perfectly functional that the aesthetics are also perfect um and there's a few things that we produce now along those lines that i just think you can't beat them like um, 1945 us army chino i've had so many different iterations of it originals and reproductions and it's always been kind of part of the wardrobe of my world um so or a 501 denim or uh, the, the perfect leather blues on in horsehide or or uh, the perfect chambray shirt. These are things that every guy should have one. Uh, if if you like to dress in the way that I like to dress, then these are things you just need to have. It's a basic tool of dressing. So we produce those, and that's something I'd like to be able to offer to people around the world. So hopefully yeah. we'll get more of that happening online.
0: We're We're starting to wrap up a little bit, but I did want to ask... You spend a lot of time in Japan. you're obviously fluent in Japanese. Um, I've watched you like you know go in and out of English and Japanese people. Um, what do you think your the amount of time you spent in Japan has changed has, has, uh, shaped your outlook on clothes and, re- and retail?
1: It's kind of hard to say from the inside looking out. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know any anything other than having spent significant portions of my life in Japan and Hong Kong Um, you know I'm Australian and I grew up amongst primarily Vietnamese and Chinese and Lebanese and uh, Greek and Italian Macedonians Um, I lived in Hong Kong for five or six years I've lived on and off in Japan over the last 18 years I can't get into the mindset of someone that hasn't had that so I don't know it's so fundamental to who i am i don't know what the answer to that would be no it's okay um i think that there is it's nice to be able to cherry pick the best parts of certain cultures and and uh eschew the rest um and there's a lot to to slough off when you're an australian that you know you don't want to you don't want to claim um likewise in japan there's things about the culture that i love and i feel so connected to and parts of it that i really Uh, I feel sorry for the Japanese for having to be subjected to, um, Mm -hmm. and the best parts of, uh, Japan, I think is the shokunin mentality. Um, shokunin in Japanese means a craftsperson, a craftsman, someone who makes something with skill and does that as a profession. So a shoemaker is a shokunin or a tailor is a shokunin. So is someone who makes wooden spoons or Mm -hmm. fans or whatever. That's a shokunin. Um, There is a dedication to a perfection of craft that I think um, makes the Japanese craftsman uh, exceptionally good. It's also an impediment because you're so obsessed with making something perfect that you forget to make it cool. Um, And I think there's a lot of that where you see things that are so studied and so perfect that they're boring and uncool. That's true. But... um, I mean, there's a, there's a lot to love about the culture. You, yeah. need, you need to come
0: and visit, and i will put you around. I know. God, I got to get over there. Well, Ethan, this has been awesome. This has been really, really good. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was good chatting. My pleasure, brother. All right, see you. You've been listening to Blammo. Our theme music is by Tan Lines. If you like this episode, there's tons more to listen to at blamopod.com. Listen to Blammo on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. While you're at it, tell a friend and leave a review. It helps what others discover the show. Follow us on Instagram at blamopodcast or send us an email at info at blamopod.com. Still want to connect? Join our newly launched Slack group and chat with other friends of the pod. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week.